0: You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX. With a premium Bang and Olufsen sound system, up to a 313 mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay. Brian Keating is the smartest guy in the world to never win a Nobel Prize. He even wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize, which I highly recommend. I think ever since I was a kid, and maybe a lot of people feel this way, I've always been interested in cosmology, meaning how did the Big Bang occur? What happened before the Big Bang? And it's always interesting. Why are these questions interesting? It will not help you in your real life to know how the universe began. But you know, the act of asking impossible questions and trying to figure them out and trying to understand them, it trains your curiosity, it makes you a better person, a better listener, more inquisitive, more intelligent. And so Brian and I have been doing, for the past few months, a series, How Did the Universe Begin? But a lot of times we just start talking and it has nothing to do with that. And we're just talking about different questions that are interesting and on this one, To be honest, we talked about so many different topics. It's just interesting. I like these podcasts where instead of it being like about, you know, I mean, I like all podcasts, but instead of this being specifically about someone's book or a specific topic, this is like, you know, eavesdropping on a conversation with at least one very smart guy, Brian Keating. And so without further ado, here's what Brian and I spoke about this week. Enjoy.
1: Um, Start recording. Yep,
0: I just want to mention that what I sent was a quote from Mark, who's one of the writers of the New Testament. The quote is: "Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And I just love the poetry of that phrase. Ran- uh, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Like ransom to who? Who was holding? Who had sort of kidnapped him? Like the earth, earthly concerns had kidnapped him, and he gave his life as a ransom for many, so that may- that I guess in a poetic sense that we can look to his example and not be as sort of kidnapped by the earthly concerns. He was the ransom we had to pay and that society yeah. that mankind had to pay. And the, and and I like that because if you look at the bookstore there's a self-help section and this whole idea of self-help is very on the one hand you look at these books and some of them have a spiritual component and all of them are about like love and gratitude and self-help self-help is like the opposite of what these religious icons like Jesus for instance, did self-help is the opposite of being a ransom for many. It's like, what can I do to not be a ransom for many? And I can, so I can help myself. Uh, My point in that was just reminding ourselves each day as, and, and the reason why this is related to stoicism, as I'm sure Marcus Aurelius did that, we have this higher purpose to view our investment of time, energy, even money as a weird way, as a payment for the, the ransom of many like, so, so Marcus Aurelius, or even a, a leader now, or a good person. Now he invests his energy and time, not necessarily for selfish purposes, but with a higher goal of sacrificing this precious energy we have this precious time we have even precious money we have to, to potentially help others. Not to hurt ourselves, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of the planet, but you know, to help others. Yeah, I think about that. Uh, wow, there's a lot in there.
2: And I'm actually gonna turn everything you said, of course, into cosmology and general relativity in about, in about two minutes, but but I do want to say I've been thinking a lot about that as well. In the context of cosmology, when we think about religious kind of teachings and the difference between Judaism. And there's no better way to learn about Christianity than to hear two Jews talk about Christianity or Stoicism for that matter. But I do think it's quite revelatory, no pun intended, that when Jesus talks about the uh, serving the people or forgiving uh, via his death them obtaining forgiveness, it is the first example in history of what is now known as servant leadership. There are all these books as you, as you talk about, you know, leadership and then how you do it. Well, he was the ultimate servant, right? He, he so loved mankind, uh, God did, that he gave his only son. Now, the question that I've always asked is, like, is that if Jesus is God, and this actually will connect to cosmology one way or another, don't worry about it. If Jesus is God and then he commits this activity that takes his own life and he knows it because God is omniscient, then is it suicide? And that always troubled me, you know, could that be viewed as an interpretation of something that's not self-care, you were talking about self-help, well, I mean, the ultimate anti-self-help is, is, is for a human being to take one's own life, and you know as better as well as anyone that I've grappled with that in, in my book, losing the Nobel Prize with the death of my mentor, the suicide of my father figure-like mentor, and death of many of, uh, other close people in my life, he is suicide, and so I'm not taking it lightly or trivializing it at all, but to say that to redeem, first of all, can you redeem someone else's sins in the future, does that violate causality in physics? In other words, if I know James is going to commit some crime, uh, can I rehabilitate him uh, on earth? Sure, I could do some counseling or whatever, but does that not require violation of the laws of physics and curtailment of your free will? And these are questions deeply embedded in a conversation I had recently. My most controversial interview to date, James, on the Into the Impossible podcast I saw this one. This is um with Steve something. Um, yeah, Steve Meyer, who's a yeah. PhD from Cambridge, where he was interacting with Stephen Hawking. He's not a scientist uh, anymore. He was a geoscientist. Now he's a philosopher. Now he's a proponent of something that sounds very scary, does it not? Let me say these words to you. Intelligent design. When I say those words, do you get all creeped out?
0: Yes, because I think right now, the, the concept of God is very detached from science. Wouldn't you say, I mean, I understand in your discussions and in discussions among physics that there's still consideration. Well, how do we fit, you know, uh, particularly among religious scientists, how do we fit God into this picture of the universe? Sorry, James, I think it's the other way around. It's,
2: it's- All right, tell me. The religious scientists have no trouble fitting God into the equations, and that's the subject of his book. His his book is basically the predicate that was goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas which that you know essentially anything that has evidence of design is never found without some mind behind it in other words the famous watch you find a watch in a cave in antarctica you don't think oh it just blew there or or there's some cave in egypt so just keep going with the i don't know why i'm into caves lately but a spelunk along side of me and there's a cave in Egypt and there's all these carvings of like a bird headed person and then there's a feather it's like you don't say like oh the wind from a from a west saharan sirocco made a uh, made a hieroglyphic like no you say it was a person some mind so this is their argument that no pattern no information not randomness randomness can occur in nature but nothing with a pattern that contains information uh, was ever established by anything other than a mind what do you mean? Say that again. So the natural cause of the universe, as we've talked about in this long-running series, which may never end, uh, is, and that's a blessing, may it never yes. end, that things tend to more and more disorder, not towards order. So in other words, a closed system, if you put a, a couple of oxygen molecules in this corner of my room, uh, eventually they'll percolate out and they'll spread around this entire room, as, as will it in every room that every listener is hearing this. Even if you're in the ISS in space, as one of my friends is right now, there will be oxygen, it will percolate out. And if it didn't, there'd be regions of the room that were highly ordered with extreme concentrations of oxygen, which you could think of as like binary code. So wherever there's an oxygen, call it a one. Wherever there's a vacuum, call it a zero. And you'd find in any closed system, like a capsule in the ISS, you never find any other distribution, but an equal mixture of ones and zeros, oxygen and vacuum, if you will. And so that would be evidence of a natural process. Things starting off, it could have started off where there's a vent of oxygen spraying in a little bit. And that's actually how they make oxygen on the ISS. They have certain chemical reactions. They also take your urine and they split it into, uh, into water and other uh, stuff and then uh, you actually drink your own urine after it's been distilled, but, but that's for another time. But anyway, to do that <laughs> requires energy to reduce something random like urine, which is which is water mixed with chemicals and whatever, and then to separate it out into water, purified water to drink, and they do that. So that requires energy. The natural state is towards disorder. Whenever you find something that has information, in other words, where there's a distinction between zeros and ones, as there is in the genetic code, you can call the four uh, G, C, T, and A, That's a four binary, that's a quaternary code. And so anything like that, they claim just as binary code was designed by human beings, Claude Shannon, Boole, mathematicians, so too was DNA. And so too were the conditions in the universe. That is the fundamental tenet of so-called intelligent designers. And uh, you'd be surprised how many people adhere to this philosophy. And it's actually, unfortunately, I want to see what you say to it. How do you prove it wrong? Prove? You're talking to a theist. This guy's a Christian, by the way, and that's gonna come into what we talked about, Jesus, his death, and free will. We'll get back to that later because he is a proponent of Jesus and Christianity. How do you refute this intelligent design argument? In other words, even people like Darwin, you know, didn't really um, uh, hold that there was uh, any reason not to believe in God.
0: I don't think you can refute it. Just like you can't refute almost any of these. How can you refute the theory of uh, um, that there might be a multiverse? Like we're talking about events that happened anywhere from quote-unquote 5,000 years ago to 13.7 billion years ago, there is no way to refute these things. Right, so it's exactly
2: the case. So you're right, you cannot falsify things for which are unobservable. Now, the question is, uh, can something spontaneous occur in nature? Would that be a a refutation? In other words, if you witnessed the assembly of DNA from basic chemicals. Say you go to the stock room at the UCSD uh, biology uh, stock room where I spend a lot of my excess capital, Uh, and you go there and you pick up some reagents, some chemicals, and then you uh, just put them in a bottle, as was done by my late great uh, colleague here at UCSD, uh, Harold Urey, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering deuterium in 1932. But anyway, he did this famous experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment they took the chemicals that represented those that uh, were most likely to be present in the early earth as they understood it they subjected it to some lightning some heat some cooling just like a rain cycle and lightning and so forth and outpot some amino acids and these amino acids are the precursors to building things like uh, rna dna they're all sorts of precursor chemicals would that not be enough to refute the intelligent designer's necessity just like if you created a big bang in the lab, but th- but that's that's hard to do, right? So you create la- life in the lab. Would that refute the need for a God?
0: Uh, I don't think so because it could be that, God, you know, again, everything could be rationalized um, and I'm not trying to defend the existence of God here because I think most conceptions of God were intended for storytelling rather than given as truth. I think it's almost pointless to try to argue. You can always say, God created things the way they are, and we just can't understand the mystery.
2: Well, yeah, but even that I think is a cop-out because I slipped something by you. You Let me slip something into the goalpost. I said, go down to the stock room and pick up some chemicals and then uh, put them in the in these containers. And so I was slipped in there a tremendous amount of what are called initial conditions. See, I realized in the last couple of weeks since we talked— uh, since Skip the Line came out, and your awesome new book with uh, Charlemagne the God, I want to do a, I want to do Charlemagne's first interview with an almost Nobel Prize losing experimental physicist. You and, and Charlemagne on the Into the Impossible podcast, but that's another story. Oh yeah, that would be that would be fun. Uh, so I have answers. I have some answers, but not not many. Uh, <laughs> but the initial conditions—that is the theme of what we're talking about. When you have a system, you typically in science, whether it's biology, chemistry zoology, physics, whatever, you have to understand the laws of the system. In other words, the law of gravitation, the law of evolution. You have to understand the dynamical processes that take a system from point A to point B, where those are separated in time. we've talked a lot about what a time is, et cetera. And what we want to uh, understand in origin of life are what are the initial conditions. So if you, James Altucher, go to the laboratory, well, first of all, that would probably be a pretty messy thing. But anyway, you took that out. Well, those are very highly purified. Those are bottled. Those are refined. You don't just usually have like oh, pure acetone is sitting over here, and uh, and you have you know perfect temperature, and you have a valve and a, and a sterilized container because you have to rule out that there was DNA or, or um, uh, amino acids in the jar to begin with. So you have to sterilize. everything. Do you think that was happening? You know, in a cave somewhere in uh, in the outer banks of Australia? No, you had to set up those initial conditions. In this circumstance, you're basically playing the role of God.
0: Yeah. So, but at the same time, maybe God said, "Okay, I want to create something." And you know, God says, "I create man in my image." We should be able to create life. God creates life, so eventually, we should be (laughs) able to reach a point where we can create life.
2: Right. That's the old joke. So, there's a scientist who comes up. Let's say uh, Jennifer Doudna, who you had on Walter Isaacson recently, who wrote the Codebreaker about her work on CRISPR. So, let's say you know now she gets really cocky. And says, "I won the Nobel Prize. I'm the best in the world. I'm the best and the brightest." Um, hey, God, I can make uh, a human being out of dirt, just like you. And God says, "Oh yeah, prove it to me." And uh, and and Jennifer says, "Okay, fine. Let me just get some dirt over here." And and God says, "Hold on a second, Jennifer. Get
0: your own dirt." <laughs> well, okay, but let's let's take the let's take the next part of that story of God, which is can Jennifer Duda make A woman out of a backbone, (laughs) out out of a spine, and and the answer is yes because she could take the stem cells out of these bones and inject them into I don't know you know a fetus or whatever and create the life that she wants to create. And of course, you're saying that women
2: are easier than men to create. Come on, James. Well, you know that my whole thing is that I call myself a devout agnostic, which kind of could be cowardly. You know, I'm not committing to one way or another. But unlike most agnostics, like I'm interviewing Michio Kaku this week for his new book, The God Equation. Oh my God, uh, but you, he's a he's a great podcast guest.
0: He's yeah, Jay, he's amazing. Jay, take note. <laughs> yes, Jay,
2: I'm gonna. Well, Jay knows him. Jay, yeah, Jay, yeah, calls, no, we, Jay calls me the second Michio Kaku, the, <laughs> the Jewish the re- Kaku. I don't no, know no. If but that's an insult or not?
0: Here, here's the thing, though, is that he's so much into string theory, and you're you're not a string theorist.
2: That's right. Yeah, there's gonna be some fireworks for sure.
0: With string theory, by the way, you can explain almost anything.
2: So that's the problem. String theory requires a pre-existing space time. Where did that come from? Now he
0: talks about that in his book. He actually
2: talks about evolution as well, and I'm going to take him to task only mostly for the evolution. Although he says something startling to me in this book, uh, called the God Equation. He said. We may be moving to a point where experiment is no longer necessary to prove a theory of physics, which I found astounding, uh, that you wouldn't need the tools that Galileo established in 1600s to validate, to test, to invalidate theories is really an astounding claim to make, and it's one that's tantamount, in my opinion, to God or to religion. You almost need to have uh, theistic belief in the power of these mathematical equations. And then the question I have is always, where did the math come from? So let's say, as he does, the math existed. Maybe there's a multiverse. Where do the laws of physics reside, James? Where do they reside? Are they like a triangle? I remember I asked you once, you know, give me a triangle. You can't. A triangle only exists in the human mind. You can make me think about a triangle. And by the way, this might be why we never have super intelligent A.I., Because AIs cannot comprehend or computers cannot comprehend of infinity or of the infinitesimal. In other words, the uh, number, something finite divided by something infinite. Computers have great difficulty doing that, as you know. So I'm not as worried about artificial intelligence apocalypse because maybe it requires some kind of apprehension of the infinite in order to have ultimate
0: power as human beings have. But his point, though, about you don't need theory, you just need the math. You make a good point, which is, where do the principles of math and physics come from? Because as we know from hundred years of math on the infinite is that there are more true equations than can be actually proven with the principles of math. So the principles of math are not complete. They're incomplete. And, and any, and then, and then furthermore, any sophisticated system of, of rules of, of math or physics or whatever is insufficient to prove all of the possible. There are more things that are true. Then there are proofs of things that are true. It's the it's you know, aleph zero versus olive one, the two two different types of infinity. So the the you could map all the proofs to the number of integers, but all the things that are true, you can map to the number of real numbers, which is the, the greater infinity. So to his point, you have to really believe your first principles in order to be willing to accept some things that are true that can't be proven. So, so his point is correct, right? But at the same time, we need. To prove things or we don't know or we don't really we don't really have faith uh, uh, past a certain level uh, in physics mm-hmm. even though there are certainly things that are true that can't be proven
2: yeah and what's interesting is that people like um you know richard dawkins will admit such things he'll say the mach- he's gaped. Uh, sorry dawkins said the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like in the same book where he says that life exists and the universe is exactly the way it exists as if it were created with blind, pittiness, uh, indifference. In other words, he, on one hand, is saying that life certainly contains information. And obviously, you know, this this kind of, uh, the structure of life, the genetic code, What what's happening with, with these intelligent design folks is that they're saying that there was an intention behind the creation of the universe. And so I push back, a little bit by saying, look, you know, I'm a cosmologist for, and he has some speculations on how cosmologically tuned and what information the cosmos by itself has in it. And there I had a great deal to say, because uh, again, when you see natural processes, if you see um, a beam of light coming towards you, a radio signal... You're very uh, conversant with radio signals, literally and figuratively. If you see a radio signal and it's very, very um, pure, it's an extremely pure signal, almost like a laser beam is a pure color. There are certain things in nature that are incredibly pure radio waves, and so you might say, well, just like the laser wasn't created by you know random processes, it was created. I went down to to Radio Shack, now owned by Ty Lopez. Did you know that Ty Lopez owns Radio Shack, James?
0: I did not. I knew he was buying, like, random brands, but yeah. uh, I did not know he owns Radio Shack.
2: Yeah, so I think he's uh, he's getting into, you know, you go down and get some 10-ohm resistors from him if you need one. But anyway, you would say if you saw a laser beam, it was created by something made by human beings. But it turns out there's a process as laser-like as possible, but it happens to be a radio signal. And it's a wavelength of radio waves that oscillates up and down every 21 centimeters, and it has a precision, in other words, the uncertainty on that on that 21 centimeters is less than, say, a millionth of a meter. So it's incredibly exquisitely fine-tuned and precise, and you'd say, that must come from a mind, you know, broadcasting a radio wave that wants us to hear it from deep interstellar space, until you understand quantum mechanics. And then you realize that that line, that signal, is the result of a very, very well understood transition in the hydrogen atom, which is the most prolific element, the most numerous element in the universe. This element has, as, as you were saying earlier, uh, the you know can can a particle have to can have its position and its momentum understood exactly at the same time simultaneously? No, the answer is not. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And so, too, the electron can oscillate its spin direction. So electrons rotate in some sense like little tiny tiny baseballs with high velocity of spin or rotation, angular momentum. And there's two different directions they can point with respect to any given direction in space, either along that direction or anti-parallel to that direction. And the electron kind of does both. It flips back and forth between those. And if you do the calculation, it comes out to give you a wavelength of a uh, 1,420 uh, uh, megahertz frequency or 21 centimeter wavelength with almost no uncertainty. In other words, we actually use that signal to calibrate certain radio instruments that we measure. And so you can be fooled by nature as well into thinking there is design. Now, if that started to modulate, that so if you just hear a signal in your radio and it's always the same, that ca- carries no information. It may be designed like a laser, but unless it shuts on and off and you can do Morse code with it or binary code with it, there's no evidence for a mind behind it. So I urge them to look a little bit harder into the evidence that they claim as evidence for um, uh, for a mind behind the cosmos. But where this well, connects to Easter and what we mm-hmm. just talked about you know, at the very beginning of the show is whether or not you can go from, let's say you believe me, that like, let's just say Pascal wagered correctly. In other words, it's better to live as if there is a god and be wrong because you, at least you lived kind of a nice life. And you know what's the what's the punishment? The same thing would have happened to you if there was a if there wasn't a god. Um, but uh, but let's say you, there is a god and you don't act that way. Well, the punishment is eternal damnation. So Pascal's wager is act as if there is a god. Now let's say I convince you by the end, or I don't convince you. This guy's book convinces you there was a mind behind it. Can you get from that mind? to Jesus Christ. I think that's a very interesting question. In other words, can you get from an, a notion of a creator of a mind to a specific mind? And I think that 2 billion people believe in worldwide. And so what is that? What what do you think, you know, could do that? Is there anything that could convince you of a specific instantiation of the mind in a body even, like Jesus
0: or like the incorporeal God of Moses? Well, when you say can you derive Jesus, do you mean derive someone who is a God Himself on Earth and then sacrifices Himself f- for some reason for 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 you know the cause of many? Maybe just a
2: personal God, a God who cares what James Altucher does. That's all. Could be Jesus. Could be Bo- whatever. I don't know.
0: I, I think I think this is a big question. I mean, look in in a lot of the why why are people researching right now? psychedelics for everything from depression to post-traumatic stress to anxiety. Cause Tim Ferriss had a podcast about it. No, I'm just <laughs> Yeah, well, no, no. But Tim Ferriss is, is funding a lot of that at, at yeah. Johns Hopkins and they're coming up with results. And, you know, to some extent, a lot of people claim that these experiences with psychedelics are sort of a pathway to something a little bit more spiritual or or divine. And so perhaps there are gateways in the mind that when opened, whether artificially or through you know, other techniques like meditation that maybe do provide that, um, bridge towards something higher that we don't understand, but we just don't know. It, it also could just be mm-hmm. some configuration of neurons and, and electric, uh, electric sparks between neurons that, uh, that, that creates those feelings. You know, there You know, you ever there's this documentary right now on Netflix about uh, near death experiences. Mm -hmm. A lot of those near death experiences are exactly the same as how people describe, um, like almost word for word, how people describe ketamine uh, experiences. So we just don't know if just these, what seems like a spiritual moment, could also just be your neurons are scrambled in such a way that you're feeling some kind of extra spiritual connection. Well, that was the whole Cartesian,
2: you know, Descartes. You know, brain in a vat. How do you know you're not a brain in the vat? How do you know this is all the matrix? I actually find, you know, there's a hierarchy, you know, Keating's hierarchy of uselessness. You know, when you think about like, do I have to have this conversation that I prove that I exist to you? (laughs) Like, if I have to answer that question, it's not a conversation I want to have. In other words, like, if you have to, if I have to demonstrate or somehow prove that I am a sentient thinking being, uh, it's going to take up so much of my mental calories that I, I really don't have time for it. And I, you know, like it fr- those kinds of conversations always frustrate me. Like, because I can just kick you in the grapes, and you'll know that I exist, right? Uh, <laughs> like, no, but but, but, this, but
0: but this applies to let's 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 look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs because I think yeah. we can rebuild Keating's hierarchy of useless conversations. Basically, what what's the lowest point? You need. Um, Food and shelter, right? right. That's physical uh, needs. Yeah. Yeah. Physical needs. So let's look at like some really poor, uh, you know, I'm going to just use a cliche. It's like a really poor person in Africa who's been mm-hmm. deprived of food, shelter, their parents are dead in war. And
2: yeah, they're not studying a lot of like French, you know, poetry and philosophy from right. the 1300s, right?
0: They don't have time. What's a useful conversation to them? we can argue every conversation for them is clearly a useful conversation. Like, how do I get Mm -hmm. food? How do I get Mm -hmm. shelter? How do I even find a modicum of happiness and joy in my day? Those are useful conversations. Then the second thing, what's, what's the second uh, need on the hierarchy of needs? Uh, I think it's like safety or like not being threatened or something like that. Like you could be food fed, but there's a tiger outside your cave. Yeah. So let's, let me just see. Yeah. So safety needs. You're right. So those are useful conversations like, Mm -hmm. um, should I wear armor if I go here? Should I carry a knife if I go into the woods? Should Can I make I, um, an
2: assumption that anyone listening to this on an Apple or an Android or a, on their computer they are not actually
0: in a cave in you know sub-Saharan Africa right, in the 1300s? Right. <laughs> so, so, so these are clearly useful. And you know, if you're crossing the street, are you safe? Like that's what we say to our kids: like, don't <laughs> cross the street because it's not safe. So these are like in the high in the hierarchy of conver- useful conversations. That's an right. important conversation to have with my kid. If you're crossing the street. Uh, you need an adult with you uh, to be safety. Then there's love and belonging. So uh, these are important conversations in our hierarchy of conversation. So it, you have a friend who's just seeing someone and a day later they wanna get married. Well, <laughs> did you have a conversation. That's a useful conversation. Well, do you really know enough about the person? Is this just You know that initial excitement? Should you calm down? Or let's say you're married for 15 years and someone cheats. Like you have a com, that's a useful conversation. Should I leave them? Should I not leave them? Is, is he or she apologetic? Like that's an important conversation. Mm -hmm. Esteem, you know, is the next level in in Maslow's hierarchy needs. So respect, Mm self-esteem, status recognition, you know, I think here's where we start to get into a gray area. Like, is it important for you to have status among society? Mm -hmm. I think that's a useful conversation, but it's a little yes, less useful because, it might be the case that status, you know, what does it, what does it mean 200 years later when everybody that you know is dead? Did it, was it really important that you spent some energy and even some, some painful energy trying mm-hmm. to get status? Like, mm-hmm. c- can you tell me, for instance, the 14th president of the United States?
1: Fillmore. This is the
0: man who's president of the planet, basically. <laughs> and if I ask anyone who's the 14th president of the United States, maybe if they kind of, calculate it out, uh, from starting for number one, they can figure it out, but mo- almost nobody can really tell me the answer. Right. Franklin Pierce, Pierce. but, uh, <laughs> I look uh, uh, but you know, uh, and, and also are you free? Freedom is in, uh, in this. So, so is it a useful conversation? Mm-hmm. Are you free? And so I'll define freedom as a greater percentage of what you do is because of you want to do it as opposed to someone telling you to do it. And so uh, let's say, that's freedom roughly there's no real definition but I'm I'm defining it that way that's kind of a useful conversation like for for people in our society like oh are you doing this because your boss your professor your parents tell you to do it or are you doing this because you really want to do it and if you want to do it explore the reasons why you want to do something is it because your fam your, for generations your family did it or whatever so that's probably a useful conversation and then of course self actualization is is the highest in Maslow's hierarchy needs, desire to become the most that one can be. That's probably useful as well. Like, are you really optimizing who you are in this short time you spend on this planet? But then above that, is there, re- is anything useful? Like for instance, discussing <laughs> how the universe began, whether it's a religious or a physics discussion, is this useful? Because I'm sure Brian, you get asked all the time why do you want to find out well what's it going to change my life if i find out how the universe began 13.8 billion years ago uh was there cosmic inflation it's going to lead to 6g i always
2: say like it's going to lead to no it, you're absolutely right i uh, one of my friends who passed away hans parr who's a great uh, professor here at uc san diego he used to say like we serve uh as physicists because there's no war <laughs> in other words neil degrasse tyson who's coming on my show uh the next week and oh, has good. been a guest he's on a your guest. show. Yeah, he's he's going to be great. He wrote a book called "Accessory to War," and it's all about astrophysics as uh, useful, you know, practitioners of the military discipline from antiquity to today. And uh, it's really true. If there was a huge war. And, you know, God forbid such a thing would happen. Yeah, the skills that I have, I am I have a bunch of Liam Neeson-like skills. No, I have, I have some skills <laughs> that are of use to some people if you happen to have a microwave radiometer lying around. But all, all these things from the cell phone to radar to laser, these are all developed because of, or, you know, an ancillary to the budget that we have with excess capital. You know, I had on a lot of Bitcoin people. I don't know if you followed any of my Bitcoin things. And I was going to see if you want to debate Peter Schiff about Bitcoin. He was on my show. Peter Schiff is the oldest, most resilient, most
0: unfalsifiable gold bug in history. And I had on Michael Saylor. by the way, Peter Schiff. And I have debated on CNBC and I would argue, I I don't want to insult the guy. He works very hard, but, uh, gold is just a rock. Whereas Bitcoin actually has, uh, you know, a million man hours of software in it, like forget uh, whether it's a currency, forget valuation. There's actual hardcore use for Bitcoin. And all the uses for gold are, there are industrial uses of gold, but they're the same industrial uses of silver and copper. So right. since silver and copper are cheaper, I'd rather use, I have, I have silver cavities, not gold cavities. I, uh, we have silver semiconductors, not gold semiconductors.
2: Yeah, so, uh, So. right. The only point I was making is that, um, so I said to, to Peter, you know, there's proof of work for Bitcoin and proof of stake for Ethereum and stuff like that. What does gold have? Well, it has proof of energy, you know, it's a stored value of energy. I said, well, you know, actually you could make even a case and I was trying to be, you know, kind of the gadfly and I said, well, then the dollar should actually has a tremendous amount of work behind it, right, James? Because I said the dollar is protected, like Bitcoin's protected by a bunch of computer nodes and people doing uh, calculations to solve crypt- cryptographic problems. Uh, similar for Ethereum. Uh, gold is, you know, protected by guys with guns in some safe somewhere underground uh, that were was uh, dug up. Then, as Warren Buffett said, you know, reburied underground, but this time with guys with guns but what's the protection of the US dollar? It's just a piece of paper. And I said, no, it's not. It's protected by nine nuclear powered carrier battle groups. The value of each one's about a $1 trillion dollars. And uh, try replacing that, you know, try try like replacing the, the hegemonic influence of the US military. And that connects back to what I said. The only reason that I can do what I'm doing now is because the US government hasn't basically exerted, exerted eminent domain over me and my students and my research budget. And said, "Look, you got to go build, uh, you know, some some advanced hyperdrive weapons or whatever." I, oh, did I say that out loud? I'm not supposed <laughs> to talk about the hyperdrive <laughs> weapon, but um, but but that that's exactly the point. But again, my point is like um, I, I view these kinds of con- existential conversations as really a, a boolean or binary situation. Either they're worth having, and you're going to go like deep into them, but you're going to assume. That the question is a good one. In other words, the question of whether or not I exist, it's a good one, but we're beyond that. Like, I think to redebate those things doesn't lead
0: to any progress up the pyramid of needs of Maslow. I'll come up with a simple definition of a useful conversation. And well, well it's encoded right there in the word useful, which is that can you build a business around the answer to the question? So, so if we're talking about um, relationships, you know, which is the, the third, love, belonging is the third from the bottom on the hierarchy of needs. Um, mm-hmm. Well, there are many business, there are billions of dollars of businesses created around these conversations like mm-hmm. Tinder and match.com as an example. And you know, there, are, there are a billion examples, um, uh, issues around self-esteem achievement. Well, look at masterclass.com and, mm-hmm. and universities and, and so on. And then, you know, self-actualization, you know, are you doing the best that you could be? there's businesses around, you know, how can you quickly solve problems? Like Google is basically a self-actualization business. And, you know, it it, it allows you to not spend time researching the trivial so you can focus on, you know, becoming the best that you can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but, but, and you made a point that astrophysics is useful to study because maybe we might need hyperdrive weapons, or maybe there's other things, like we need to populate Mars when Earth collapses or whatever. But at some point, then you have to ask, is there a business behind understanding if cosmic inflation occurred in the first trillionth of a second after the big bang, like what business can be developed after that? Now I'm just playing devil's advocate. I do think, I do think there is a use for these things, which is that curiosity is a muscle that leads to innovation ultimately. And these are great domains to exercise our curiosity.
2: I think there's an element that often goes unappreciated, and that's the element of serendipity, that most great discoveries and things that the, that we deal with at a fundamental level were or many of them, not most, but were accidental. And there's many examples of that, including the discovery of the cosmic microwave background, including the discovery of penicillin, which then led to tremendous numbers of drug developments and so forth in the future. But you know the problem is, as I say in losing the Nobel Prize, serendipity is pretty hard to plan on. Uh, by definition, it's unknowable. It's un—you uh, know—it's unexpected. It contains that Darwinian element of surprise, and surprise being something that contains information. So I, I would say, what would Claude Shannon, uh, the you know one of the fathers of in- modern information theory, what would he describe as uh, something that's useful? It would be something that stores information, that can reproduce information, that can somehow process information. You know, for example, your computer on your like desktop computers are clearly useful to you, right? But are they profitable? Can you make a business out of them? You could have, like, if you're Michael Dell or you know this guy in San Diego. uh, He had remember Gateway computers. Yeah, like there was a guy. like he just like made Gateway, Like you could order them. They came in a box like a cow from somewhere. And, And like I don't know if the guy's alive or dead, but like like the 14th president. You know, it's like he made some huge. Okay, so he started a business, but still, these computers are still useful to us. And so my question is: How do you get new surprise? How do you not not is something useful, James? But how do you generate that which can produce something that can produce
0: a well, business? Well, oh, okay, that's a great point because let's say let's say back in 1905 there was this young, just random office guy worked in a at a desk in a patent office, going over patents, and he had this dream of um, what would it be like if a man traveling on a spaceship going the speed of light were to look at a man um standing still on earth and who would guess that that such a question which doesn't sound useful at all because when's there <laughs> when's the last time you ran into a, a man traveling on a spaceship the, the going the speed of light <laughs> who would guess that this that that conversation about that would lead to let's say nuclear fusion and and nuclear energy and atomic bombs and and so on so you're right so it's it's taking taking the edge of curiosity and combining it with the useful in, in, and let's say that happens over and over again, one out of a million times that, that the useful has sex with the, not what seems like the non-useful will have a baby that's useful. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Einstein's dream, so to speak, had sex with our need for, for cleaner energy and the baby of that, was remarkably uh, nuclear energy.
2: Yeah, and I think I think we can relate exactly Maslow's needs that you started off with a, a little bit ago with Shannon. I mean, what Shannon is saying is that uh, the amount of information that you associate the 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 way that you say something is worthy or has good information is by asking how much doubt how much uncertainty, how much safety, uh, how much uncertainty did it remove? And therefore, how much more safe in some intellectual sense do I now feel thanks to that information that was conveyed? So in other words, like, you know, you you buy a lottery ticket, you don't know if you're going to win, but the surprise that you feel when you win because you know how uh, uncertain or improbable that is, and maybe that will lead to more physical safety, et cetera. Uh, that more improbable something is, the more uncertainty, anxiety, and doubt is removed. And maybe you move up the ladder of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in so doing.
0: Yeah, no, I. That, this is a good point, which is that what's really happening, like let, let's look at the entire development of information theory. And, and I'm gonna include in information theory things like Alan Turing, who figured mm-hmm. out a way to encode, um, uh, you know, with his sort of Turing, compu- Turing machine ideas, uh, how to encode all information or how to encode all ma- mathematical equations or, or people like, uh, I guess it's Alonzo Church who developed the Lambda Calculus, which is sort of a way to also encode all first principles in, in mathematics. And all of this information theory, like labeling it, we, we all we always knew information exists, but actually defining the different types of information and learning how to simply encode it eventually led to you know, today's computers. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like some and, and so I would argue there's a little extra leap, which is that not only did Einstein dream about, you know, this man traveling the speed of light, he basically labeled what is actually happening. So the e equals m c yes. squared. he 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 figured out what's actually happening. It's just like it's just like if you're arguing, let's say you're arguing with your spouse, and she's she's saying or or he's saying, You know, you you don't clean up your room enough. Um, And and then suddenly the conversation as these do morphs to like, you know, it's just like when you were, um, you know, you didn't pick up the tickets to the movie we wanted to see and we had to pick up the tickets. If you label something, wait, are we arguing about the tickets picking up or are we arguing about cleaning up my room? It's never about (laughs) that. Right. So, so, so. Uh, Never about the toilet
2: seat. That's my, that's my line.
0: (laughs) But, but labeling actually what is happening um allows us to turn a dream or something useless it closer to something useful because now that it's labeled we can use these labels to have you know sex with something useful <laughs> so once once einstein was able to label this dream with e equals mc squared and then we were able to now we we couldn't take his dream and merge it with energy but we could label we we could take what he labeled it as the, this formula and then merge it with the need for clean energy. And so Michio Keiko's point is, is that, um, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't really know. Michio Keiko's point is we assume some, some first principles and the, but, but the closer we are to labeling what is happening as opposed to proving that the label is true, the closer we are to finding something useful out of it is my guess.
2: Yeah. Uh, but again, at the heart of this conversation is, you know whether or not there's enough evidence that would make a convert out of James or you know or, or turn you from actually I've never talked to you what what is your religious outlook I know you're not practicing I know you're born Jewish you're culturally Jewish you're ethnically Jewish you've got all the uh, Ashkenazi you know traits you're 99.97% Ashkenazi and as I told you once nobody's perfect <laughs> but, uh, but no, just kidding to my Sephardic brothers and sisters out there. Um, it's, it's, it's funny because one of my sons, well, I was uh, once dating a girl who was Sephardic a Jew. And uh, uh, recently I drove by the hotel where we went on one of our dates. It was not, we didn't go into the hotel, James. Get your mind out of the gutter. We went there for a, a kosher drink. And I drove past it and with my son, and I said, that's where I went on a date with somebody before I met uh, mommy. And he goes, wow. And I said, yeah, be, if, because it didn't work out, you're here now. And he said, "No, Daddy, no, no. If 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 you married uh if you married the that girl uh, who was having to be Sephardic from Israel, um or no, she was from Iran. Uh, uh, I would look the same as now. I would be I would be here. I would just have very straight black hair." And I said so racist but no and i said that's wonderful uh to him i said that's very interesting so you think it goes along with daddy right (laughs) you think your your existence goes along with me it's just your superficial looks i'd say no you wouldn't even exist who knows where you'd be or who knows what you'd be i know it'd be worse because i love him so much and he's perfect the way he is but it's just interesting the way that kids think like what cause and and effect lead to the particular state of information that's realized so i want to ask you what would it take for me to to talk to you to get you to say go to
0: church or to go to synagogue or to be what i call a practicing agnostic i believe that i am a practicing i, I don't like the word agnostic just like i don't like the word atheist mm-hmm. i feel like atheists belong to a religion the religion of a, in fact <laughs> atheists yes. are almost more religious than yes religious people because <laughs> they are constantly arguing about atheism it's a, it's still an ism it's a philosophy of the universe they will argue it to the bone. They will hate people who don't believe them. It's exactly like
1: yes, a, a you're 100 percent
0: right. I've done that. I've said that. So James, and, and by talk- the way, a lot of atheists yeah. are into then spending five thousand dollars for a mantra in transcendental meditation, even though you can meditate purely for free. If and you, you know, are. I got mine for free
2: from Deepak Chopra himself. He changed my mantra from schmuck to shalom. It was in my episode from January called, uh, God is within you or something. But, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I talked to J, uh, to Michael Shermer who runs skeptic magazine. And even he and I come to this agreement. He's a devout practicing atheist, but even though he says the only reason he doesn't like atheism, is because it defines you by what you're not, but
0: you're absolutely right. It's as militant, you know, kind of in its dogmatism as any religion. Well, well, and look, take, take atheism one step further. Um, uh, so you don't, you don't believe in a, um, any prior story of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but let's remove the, um, define yourself by what you're, you aren't, then you get existentialism, which mm-hmm. is there's no real knowledge of any beliefs, but it's good for the sake, it, it's good to be good for the sake of being good. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of biological evidence that being a better person is good for your health is good for your longevity is good for your you know your happiness in life and 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 so on like you know if you're uh, uh, if you take these seven deadly sins like let's take gluttony uh chances are if you if you enjoy the pleasures of eating nonstop and eating cake nonstop it's not going to be so healthy for you. you might enjoy it short term, but in the long term, you'll have some consequences, although some people don't, so it's hard mm-hmm. to say but uh to for me i I do believe that. There is something of reverence, but it's not separate from from me. Like all the all the universe, and this is, by the way, related to uh, deeper philosophies in Judaism, which is that often the definition of God is everything that isn't in Judaism, because you can't really understand. Anytime you try to li- put a name to God, there's no real name to God in Judaism. So anytime right. you, uh, and, and and take that one step further, anytime you put any attribute or name or label to God or any of God's features, you're wrong in Judaism. <laughs> and so, so God essentially is defined by uh, everything that isn't. And I kind of uh, believe that. And so so meditation, so let's connect that to meditation for a second. Meditation is basically discarding in your mind everything that you think exists, it doesn't. So you, you basically, a lot, a lot of meditation is just not this, not this, not this. Like you have thoughts that happen in your head. Well, you, you know, you notice them and then you dispose of them, and and meditation is just that ongoing process. And so I, I think Judaism and 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 a lot of these uh, med- philosophies of meditation are almost exactly the same, as a, but but then you add on the ritualized aspect, like okay, you, now you got to go to synagogue and you got to uh, do this and do this and do this. I I don't like any of the rituals. I kind of like the purest form of these of these religions.
2: So so in that case, then then I feel like uh, the. Way that you're proclaiming it is sort of agnostic. Agnostic
0: that there's a human-like being that created the universe,
2: right? But here's That's my di- just a story. Here's my difficulty with that, with the way that you specifically practice. So I'm going to go deep, and I'm, I'm not going to say you, you know, you have to vote and you have to run for president. Although I am <laughs> going to take your lead and do that. Uh, but but nevertheless, imagine the scenario. Uh, we make contact with an alien species. And uh, we don't know yet about their God or whatever, but or if they believe in God or if God even exists or, or what have you. But I say, look at me or look at my rabbi, uh, look at James and look at Richard Dawkins. W- place James on the spectrum from Richard Dawkins to my rabbi. And i say, okay, well, let me let me look at him because all we can do is observe him. Oh, okay, well, you know, he doesn't kill anybody, but neither does Richard Dawkins. You know, he doesn't uh, commit adultery. What was the other? He's not a glutton, neither is Richard Dawkins. Uh, you know he did, and and oh Richard Dawkins he doesn't go to this this building with a pointy you know spire on uh, Sundays uh, but uh, and James doesn't go there maybe James goes to that uh, you know flat ugly looking the bookstore uh, uh, library looking place over there oh no that's a synagogue oh maybe he goes there on Saturday oh no he doesn't do that in other words how would somebody
0: distinguish you from your behavior I, I would say I am more religious than your rabbi okay so because your rabbi label, he, he he puts a cap on his beliefs by by once he engages in ritual. But so, you can't know someone's beliefs, right? I mean, how do, how, how do you know what someone's thinking or they believe? Well, they're doing the ritual because they believe there's some importance to it. Now, it could be he's doing it for cultural significance, and that's one thing. Then that's not religion. But if he's doing it because if he, he's afraid if he doesn't do it, then God will disapprove of his actions, then I feel there's a cap on on his beliefs about what the universe could be. What if
2: he thinks that God, you know, wants him to do this because it's good for him the same way like your daughter didn't think it was great to like, you know, wipe her backside after she went to the bath. <laughs> I don't know,
0: I don't get well, too disgusting. Uh, I, but like, I, I respect or brush that. your teeth, yeah. Mm-hmm. I respect that because it's like, it's like the same thing that we're talking about trying to figure out how the universe began. We, You know, at some point, you, you sort of have to say, okay, uh, this is where we stand with this and this is what we know. And so we should act, accordingly. So, so, but I'm, I'm basically saying there is things we don't understand basically everything we don't understand. So anything we do understand is, is useless. And the only thing useful is, is the most religious thing you could do is get beyond uh, being able to accept that there's nothing we understand. And by doing that, we get closer to some core of what's real.
2: I think we have and, a- and every
0: time we you label anything, though that's just man-made. A synagogue is a man-made place. A thought of a synagogue, a thought of a ritual, it's just a man-made device. What what do ants do? Do ants daven when they pray? Probably not. So so everything else is just man-made or artificial, whereas try to eliminate all the artificial in your thinking, which is impossible to do, and that gets you on a path closer to whatever it is that it is true. And and by the way, nothing's true. <laughs> because I just labeled something as truth, so that's not true.
2: Right, so. exactly. So you get these infinite regress. Well, I think we have a title for the for the episode:
0: "How to Have Useful
2: Conversations." I, I interviewed this guy, Peter Bogosian, who was uh, who was an assistant professor at Portland State University, and he goes out of his way to say that because he didn't get tenure, and um, and there were very circums- uh, suspicious circumstances behind his academic uh, termination, but or lack thereof. Well, why? Um, well, I think that you know he's he was um, he's one of these extremely anti woke advocates. Uh, he wrote a book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, and of course, I had to have him on the Into the Impossible podcast. And he discusses you know uh, these kind of responses to critical race theory to um, to now there's you know it's it's getting into the sciences and and you know there are the debates on whether or not two plus two equals five is white supremacy. This is something that uh, a program in Portland, sponsored in part by the Gates Foundation, led to a lot of controversy about. I'm not going to speculate on that, except to say that I looked up all the universities in Nigeria. Uh, which Nigeria has some of the most brilliant people in the world, as you know. And at none of their universities do they teach anything different than 2 plus 2 equals 4. So I don't know where they got the notion that that 2 plus 2 equals 5 is white supremacy. It could be some other kind of uh, uh, implicit bias or whatever, but certainly not held anywhere outside of the United States that such a thing is valid. And so he got into tremendous amounts of controversy with his, uh, his colleague uh, James Lindsay, uh, who's another controversial figure. And uh, they wrote a book about how to have you know conversations. And basically it's like that guy Chris Voss – you know that guy Chris Voss who wrote um, "Never Split the Difference." Yeah, yeah, he's been on my
0: podcast a couple times.
2: Yeah, so I read his book. Uh, it's really good. It's it's especially good if you happen to be negotiating with a hostage, you know, in uh, in the you know downtown Manhattan hostage negotiation team. But like talking to your wife, it's not so great. No, honey, I'm never going to split the difference. Are you crazy? No, we're going out for pizza every single night. You know, it it's not as practical as this. So what what Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay get into is uh, you know, what or what seemingly seems to be an impossible conversation. You and I are so far apart. Uh, you think that um, that academia is free of racism, free of structural bias, uh, free of prejudice, and I think the opposite is true. How can we have any kind of a conversation? As you and I always say, like a lot of debate is pointless unless the other person's willing to change his or her mind. And so in this case, it's not about changing their mind. It's as Voss is. Voss is clearly like, you're not gonna like, except okay well I didn't change your mind about like blowing the head off some bank robbery hostage uh that's fine you know as long as we're each into no this is this is more about like making sure that you understand that you reframe the other person's argument as you always say it's not a real debate unless you can rephrase and do it better than they did for yourself that's one of your right. top techniques and so they they
0: co-opt another another case of authors taking james materials and repackaging it <sighs> I might have I might have taken theirs. You you never know. It goes both ways. <laughs> but 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 you're right. Like you could convince me to go to synagogue by saying, "Look, there there's a community. Community is one of the foundations of positive psychology and uh religion has been shown for thousands of years to promote community and and well-being and happiness and there's also evidence in blue zones that there's a little bit more, uh, reverence for religious institutions. So, and blue zones are these areas of the world where people. Comedians live only high... do uh, dirty material. Yeah, exactly. That could be another kind of book on blue zones, but, <laughs> uh, blue zones are places where people live to be over a hundred with a high quality of life, you know, statistically more than other places. So you can convince me that way. And that, and that, and that it touches, you know, religious feeling somehow touches some sort of dopamine or serotonin receptors and, and that's about you, that's happiness. about you. I'm saying I'm saying what would it take to
2: convince you that the notion of a mind of a god of of something with purpose with teleological intent created the universe that you enjoy and, and that you inhabit in other words, if i well, let me let me take a step back, James. I'm sorry, let me reframe the conversation. Do you think it would impact your life if you could somehow have very high credulity that God exists? in other words, not not proof, nobody could prove it? But if you had evidence of the existence of God, not proof, but evidence that was strong enough to meet some arbitrary threshold for you, would that change your life? Would you do things differently? Would you stop robbing old ladies at the beach? Define God and I can give you an answer. (laughs) Some sort of super intelligent, omniscient, omnipotent, powerful being who created both the universe, the laws of nature, the laws of physics, And created the existence of a unique species on earth, not ants, that Davin, that would be kind of cool, but created a unique species of entities whose name is Homo sapiens sapien, which means a man that knows that he knows. In other words, we know, I, I saw some cows the other day. I was driving around San Diego. There's some cows there. And I'm like the cow just sits around and eats all day long and doesn't know, but the the the, cow, the the farmers being really nice to him until the end of the summer when he's big and fat, and then he's gonna uh, he's gonna kill him, right? So in other words, the the cow doesn't know that he's going to die, as far as we know, and my dog doesn't know that he's going to die, as far as we know. We are the only species that has ever existed that knows we're going to die, and therefore we know we're going to live. And so I want to ask you, what I'm saying is this: this creature or this entity that you were created. Let's just say creationism, not not like young earth. You know, I don't believe in that. Uh, But there was some mind that had a blueprint, a code, or an intention in mind that eventually James would come along. I'm not saying everything was made for you, but that you are a part of the pinnacle of intention of a creator of the universe and of a creator of of human being. I'm not saying I believe in this. I'm just saying, if you believe that was true, because I actually believe you. Most rabbis don't believe, you know, the basic tenets of their faith, and their and their actions show it to you. But I'm saying because you don't display actions, what if you did know that, or or not know that? What if you had evidence of that,
0: that there was a supernatural? Uh, uni- uh, what you're saying, all uh, sim- more simply, is uh, there's uh, if there's evidence of the of a divine uniqueness of man. Yes. And so the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean I need to live as if? I have some purpose? No, no, first uh,
2: first let's not get too weighted down in it. Would it change your life? Would you change no, your life? No, because
0: okay. I don't know what that means really that okay, I assume that I'm um unique in some way and it makes me want to live the best life I can live. So I don't know if it would if it would change me other than like like the way I think about things does change me because mm-hmm. it helps me to ultimately realize nothing is that important. And I could live accordingly, which is actually that sounds you could. It doesn't mean live poorly because that would actually be bad for my life and my family and 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 the and the, my biology. But I don't um, I don't ex- give importance to any supernatural or any extraordinary thing in life. Everything, really? everything. So, is,
2: so so let's say on this, my colleagues upstairs in the astronomy building you know, department, um, who work on searching for extraterrestrial life. What if they actually make contact—it's a benevolent species of aliens uh, that exist, um, and we know that we are actually created by them. In other words, we are aliens. We were— Yeah, like, let's say we're like a simulation. That's the same kind of thing. Okay, so let's say that we're a simulation— Um, I think it's a little different if you think you're a simulation because simulation connotes not lack of realism or lack of uniqueness. In other words, I can create infinite numbers of simulations in, in Silicon space, but in physical space, you know, I'm a meat, you know, a meat machine. It feels a little bit different to me. So I, I, let's just say it's aliens that created us or a super intelligent alien uh, created us. And we don't know why they created us. Um, would you change the way that you, that you live? I think you would. I think there's no but, but chance how, that you would.
0: Why, but why would I though? Like, what would be the reason? Which you want to learn about that particular entity? Okay, yeah. So I might want to. I might want to learn about that. But and even what they that, want for you? Um. Well. Oh, yeah. I would want to learn if, if this is what I was saying before. I would want to know. Does that mean I have some obligation because of this? I would want to learn what that obligation is, or what that, or or does it mean I have some potential to do something that is extraordinary that I'm not aware of, and I want to learn what that is and how and how to go about it and how to take that path so yes the answer is is yes uh it would change my life so it would exactly so
2: i think now i'm asking so what what's the probability of there being that alien species and maybe you think it's very low uh, but what if you were at you could by learning about the the uh, potential characteristics of such an entity that you could come to you know maybe aid in the search for the existence of that species. In other words, like we're just missing somebody who uh, who can tell uh, great comedy routines uh, is a, a chess master and uh, and is able to uh, come up with ten ideas a day, and that's all we're missing because we have this thing of, of this fascination with the number ten in this particular religion. Uh, so, you know, but we're just missing you, James. And in other words, like, is it the collective experience that would appeal to you? Like, we want, I, I, James would want to know, what does this alien want for human beings? Or would it be more important to know, what does this alien want for me specifically, James? Like, oh, I should divorce Robin and, 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 marry, um, and, and marry
0: Birdie over there. I would just assume, unless I was told otherwise, that I'm already fulfilling the alien's dreams by pursuing my curiosity, like presumably I would imagine, and I could be wrong, they're curious how we would act and they're learning from our curiosity and our discovery and how we, the same way we experiment on things, they're doing an experiment by creating us and by me being curious and expanding my horizon of knowledge, that's what my, that's what the purpose of being human is. That's why we try to figure out, you know, how did the universe begin? around you can find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader
1: sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential with capella university's game-changing flex path learning format you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away
0: if you look at like, you know, the fundamentals of, of physics, you, you, you break mm-hmm. it down to the smallest components, the infinitesimal, which is how it all started with, with quantum mechanics, you realize we don't even know anything. We, <laughs> most of space is space, is empty space. And most, and, and like we were talking about in the beginning of this, that uh, we can't, even a particle, we can't both determine its location and its momentum. So at a very fundamental level, information and knowledge disintegrate, not just break down, but they completely disintegrate. There is nothing to know. And so I assume that by living my life, according to this really basic first principle of the universe, then, then that will give me a better life, a religious life.
2: Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to argue with that for somebody,
0: you know, who is, uh, who is obviously a good person, is doing good things. But, but don't you if, think Judaism argues the same thing? There is no way to label reality in Judaism.
2: Well, yes, and Judaism uh, is, a, is a pragmatist uh, kind of practical behaviorist religion. So, in other words, the way that you meditate is prescribed, the way that you mourn. And actually, you know, this something came home very close to me when my father passed away. Um, that was extremely difficult to envision the mourning process proceeding in a different way than it did when I lost my father, and and having that different way be better or an improvement upon this thousands of year old tradition that's known as Shiva, meaning seven. Just sitting Shiva means sitting at uh, for seven days at home, and it's very orchestrated. I don't know if you've ever experienced yes. that, James, um, and and it's um, but it's it's almost comforting, is it not? Because You don't have to come up ad hoc with a new thing in the worst possible moment of your life when you've lost a parent, you know, the rock of your life in some sense. And and then you're having to, like, well, he would have wanted me to scatter his ass. No, my brother thinks, oh, no, he would want to be, you know, dropped out of an airplane into a volcano. I, I don't know. There are all these different, no, there's a very specific, regimented set of rules. And and now you could say, well, I can do them and not believe in God. But my question, I guess, is like, and and again, I am talking as a devout agnostic. But someone who I believe devout in my devout agnostic definition differentiates me from you. In that, I actively will go to a temple. I will actively read the Torah. I will actively,
0: and I know you do a lot of these things. Not maybe not. Temple, but, but 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 there's a there's a good reason for for that. You do mm-hmm. these things, and there's a good reason for the shiva. And then on morning too, mm-hmm. I really find it beautiful that. You you have the the funeral, you have a shiv you sit Shiva, and then you are not allowed to visit the grave for one year. Because and that and that's mm-hmm. very beautiful too, because it means you need to almost exercise the muscle of moving on with your life. And that's yes. what that's that's about. And so more You're not allowed it, to bring flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 my point is there, Judaism is a good example of a, a concentrated group of people that have fo- that have focus grouped best practices. For eating, for sleeping, for sex, for marriage, mm-hmm. for death, uh, for for reverence of of nature, it's almost like they focus grouped this the so many details of of life so we could so we could live the best life, and they mm-hmm. use that as an example. And by the way, then Christianity and Islam, the two biggest religions, kind of come from you know, they stem from Judaism. They right. also appreciate the this focus group of best practices, and, and they've only changed it slightly, those best practices. So how do we know it's not just one giant focus group of how to live life, when life was arguably harder to live than it is now?
2: Certainly it was. And, and just you bring up Christianity, and I want to tie this to the origin of the universe, because um, they make a distinction, these Christian apologist, which is called apologism. I don't know why it's a terrible name, but but anyway, they call it Christian apologism um, and what it means is uh, basically rational arguments for the existence of Jesus. Now, where I have a problem with it, there are people. So this guy who wrote the God return of the God hypothesis, he wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt about the explosion, the pre-Cambrian and Cambrian explosion of foss- of um differentiation that we see in the fossil record and speciation. And how improbable that is, just based on uh, ordinary natural selection. This is something that troubled Darwin. He wrote the signature in the cell, which is about you know encoding DNA and information. So that one you actually you know don't need to read. This new one is a lot more comprehensive. Oh, oh by the way, James, this guy writes books that are six hundred pages long, and then you get the book in the mail. I got the book in the mail. and said, Dr. Keating. I love your uh, I love your work. Um, you know, I saw your videos. Uh, I'd love it if you gave an endorsement on the back of my book. Called the Return of the God Hypothesis. It's coming out next year. I said "Mm, maybe I would. You know, look at me. He goes, oh, next week would be great. (laughs) I'm just like, uh, next week. You know, this is 560, and I have a rule that I don't endorse books until
0: I've read them. And and look, you're a Nobel Prize losing physicist. Yes, (laughs) exactly. You're you're a busy guy. You can't get homework assignments from someone who's not going to give you a Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) And I said,
2: look, let me talk to you on the phone. And here's my problem. I said on the
0: and he's a wonderful
2: guy. We've become very good friends. Uh, he's actually close with Eric Weinstein, our mutual friend and and uh, and Peter Thiel, et cetera. Um, and and he works at this Discovery Institute. And I said, I have a problem with people like this other guy named William Lane Craig, or William Craig Lane. I always forget. Anyway, this guy's the he's a Christian apologist. He'll go out there and he'll say the following, James. Uh, and I told this to the author of this book, uh, Stephen Meyer. I said I said, uh, Stephen, the problem I have with these guys, like the normal Christian Christian apologists, not intelligent designers per se, is that they start with this ancient argument: everything that exists had a beginning. Therefore, everything need, that came into existence had to have something, some entity to begin it. And that is, you can call that, that you know, the laws of physics or whatever. And then we got into, you know, where do the laws of physics come from? So let's let's put a pause in that, pin in that for now. And then I say, the next thing they say is that everything that exists that's designed has a purpose. And that purpose may be, you know, we I may mean, not be, a, a, you know, undecipherable deci- by us, but it has a purpose. A watch, you know, a computer, a Leatherman tool set, you know, these all have purposes. They're all made. Food is made in, you know, distilled wine or whatever. It all has a purpose. And then everything that has a purpose, there's a mind behind that that has a desire for that uh, entity to act in a certain way and therefore Jesus Christ. Well, well in other but
0: words, the, the last one seems like a hard assumption, the, yeah. that everything has, has a purpose is part of Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. Right, there's um, nothing you know, extraneous. Predator and prey. Yep, there's no nothing extraneous in nature.
2: You know, the the you know survival of the fittest means the uh, d- demise of the weakest. And so, if you have all carrying all this extra genetic information and extra limbs and stuff, you're probably not going to survive so long. So, right, but that's exactly the problem I have. And I said to this guy, intelligent design Christian, I said I don't adhere to that. First of all, I'm Jewish. Uh, And second of all, the, the, you know, the notion that you could derive the existence of Jesus from logical, rational laws that he existed as the son of God presupposes this kind of foreordination of the future, which I think limits our free will. In other words, if God, if Jesus died for our sins, either he was successful or he wasn't, either he was God, was the Messiah was the Holy Ghost, this tripartite God um, that the Christian's um, faith believes in. But does that not rob us of our free will? In other words, how can you die for somebody else's sin? In Judaism, it's a sin. You're only allowed to die if somebody asks you to worship an idol, asks you to commit adultery, or asks you to um, kill somebody else, uh, murder somebody else, not kill, but murder somebody else. Uh, otherwise you're not allowed to, to die. In other words, if I say, James, eat this ham sandwich and you're a practicing Orthodox Jew, you'll say, pass the mustard because it's to save your life. If I say, if you don't eat this ham sandwich, uh, you're, I'm gonna kill this woman over here. Okay, then you're gonna, you know, then, then it's different. Then, uh, or, you know, if you don't uh, take the bullet, so to speak, I'm gonna, uh, you know, you, you cannot take another person's life or be in, even indirectly responsible for it. But what Jesus was doing I said was, you know, kind of it's not one of the one of the methods by which you're it's okay to give up your life. So for that reason alone, I find it a challenge to accept the divinity of Jesus, or perhaps that he had, you know, died for my sins. In other words, he would have to know me personally. Now you could say it's an allegory for all mankind, but then you get to this concept of original sin. And Judaism doesn't have such a concept. So for these reasons, you know, I said to this guy, I don't, I'm reluctant to give a blurb on the back of your book. And he said, that's fine. That's fine. And I, so I ended up reading the whole book, making sure it's not like, oh, if you made it this far, you're now a Christian. (laughs) You know, like I had to make sure, you know, like I used to do in my uh, high school uh, history essay, you know, check this box if you're still reading this to my Mr. Middlestat, uh, which he never checked the box. But um, so, you know, so the notion is, is, is what's being proclaimed is that, you know, having a beginning of the universe is tantamount to, you know, at least admitting the existence of a designer of the universe. And I pushed back even on this guy whose book I did endorse. And I said, you know, you may not agree with everything in this book, <laughs> uh, as I don't, uh, but you'll have your work cut out for you, basically. And, and the point is, uh, there are many laws of the universe that don't have a starting point to the universe. And including those that uh, that really are really in fashion nowadays uh, that postulate multiverses. So if there if God exists, is that incompatible with the multiverse? Uh, but then I turn it around to my you know. Na- By the way, uh, people that are atheists don't call themselves atheists anymore. They call themselves humanists or secular humanists, because that doesn't proclaim an, a lack of belief in something. But now there's other ones that are scientific ones. They call themselves scientific naturalists or scientific humanists. Sean Carroll is one of those. And then they say, well, start with the laws of, na- of, of physics. I can get you a universe. But again, then you presuppose that physics, math, and, and the laws of logic exist.
0: But by the way, it, yeah. it doesn't always presuppose that, right? Like uh-huh. in, a, in a multiverse, it's sort of, there are theories of a multiverse where every universe kind of has a random set of first principles for physics and math. That's exactly what are, I was going to say. Th- yeah, those universes don't necessarily last long. Uh, they're like, they could be like sort of weird mutations of, of the laws of physics. So they last for a, a, a quadrillionth of a second or, or they last where there's no way to have any matter or, or anything like that. And then out of an infinite number of scrambling the laws of physics, we happen to stumble upon this universe, which has the laws of physics that could create our form of life and matter. Right. So I actually take it a step further because
2: what you just said is absolutely true. And there is a survival of the fittest element, the fecundity of uh, the universe of, of the type that we inhabit. And that leads to what's called the anthropic principle. And there's different versions of the anthropic principle. It basically says the universe is as it is to produce creatures such as ourselves here to ask why the universe is here as it is. Or as another physicist once said, you know, a theory of everything, uh, pr- uh, A theory of everything describes everything except that which theorizes about a theory of everything. Uh, Right,
0: which is why we're always able to take it one step further. Like, the the first theory of everything was Earth's all that exists. second theory of everything is, okay, everything revolves around the sun. Third theory of everything is, okay, the sun revolves around the universe. Uh, (laughs) Fourth theory of everything is, uh oh the universe is just a galaxy and we revolve around a bunch of other galaxies and and it keeps going yes and and i think what happens when you take that to the limit that's when you discover let's say let's call it truth but the 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 uh, paradox is you can never take it to the limit because there's always the next level
2: and i want to take it to an even uh, farther level so you exactly are are demonstrating your command over losing the nobel prize because i talk about those four different copernican revolutions where we thought we're the center of, of the solar system, the uh, the galaxy, the universe, now the multiverse. Now in time, you can have a multiverse. In other words, you could have a multiverse that's parallel universes to us. There's another universe just over there. It's, 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 it's a heck of a nice place, I'm told. Let's go there. But it's, uh, it's in the sixth dimension, uh, so we can't access it. Or it could be a cyclical multiverse where there's just one universe, we're in it now, uh, but ten a billion years, uh, you know, a hundred billion years ago, there was another universe that died for our sins, you know, the Jesus universe, if you like, and then made up the material that we're made up. But here's another thing that I've come up with, and I have not had a satisfactory answer, despite interviewing nine Nobel Prize winners. Uh, for my upcoming book, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, inspired by James Altucher, with uh, two of five forwards written by James Altucher. Uh, don't ask <laughs> me why I have five forwards in the book, but I'm hoping James will write at least two of them. I will. And, and, I'd uh, be honored. So, Thank you. So in these conversations with these Nobel Prize-winning brainiacs, I asked them questions about the ultimate uh, testability of nature, the existence of the multiverse, uh, the existence of what's called in string theory, the landscape, which is another type of multiverse. And I say, what's to prevent not only the laws of physics from changing from universe to universe, but what, why do we have any confidence that the laws of mathematics, the laws of logic, philosophical existence laws, how do we know that those don't change too in different universes in the multiverse? And I have not gotten a satisfactory answer. In other words, if A, then B, then B, and B, modus tollens, I think, Uh, uh, if that's true, then A, you know, if A, then B, and B exists, uh, uh, or if A exists, then B, then B, uh, modus tollens, uh, that law, what if it's not true? What if it's the opposite in universe, you know, 65,069? How do we know that the laws of of math are the same in each one of those universe? And then it seems to me everything is hopeless, and yet, because you couldn't make any predictions. If you say to me, uh, what, what you claimed was a universe that only lasted a, a microsecond, James, but in that universe, a microsecond is a really long time, uh, and even the concept of a micro is a huge number compared to what we think of a microsecond relative to a – you know what I'm saying? So the, the point that I'm trying to make is how do we know that the laws of logic don't vary from universe to universe? There's no reason to expect that they, they wouldn't, so maybe 2 plus 2 is 5. In some other universe,
0: but, you know, even though it's not true in our particular universe. I, I agree because, again, if you take this constant refutation of of man is the center of everything and you keep refuting and refuting and refuting every prior refutation of that, you're going to get to everything is nothing can be taken as established truth. And maybe that's the only truth is that the secrets lie behind W- what we don't know, and, and I would argue that is the, the the foundation of of the philosophy of Judaism, mm-hmm. is that at the end of the day, nothing can be, nothing can be defined with a with sacredness.
2: Mm-hmm. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is holy. Nothing is
0: absolute. Right. There's no no absolute because everything's just created out of our thoughts, which is just electric charges uh, uh, going back and forth between synapses along but synapses. People
2: react so hostilely to that notion. I did a video. Uh, for this Prager University, uh, which is now my uh, third video with them. And, uh, you know, of course, they're Christian, you know, focused organization, although Dennis Prager is a, you know, pretty devout practicing Jew, very similar to me. Uh, nevertheless, a lot of Christians that watch this. And, um, and it was an opportunity for me. It's called, uh, it's called Follow the Science. And I did kind of an explainer video. That was a great video. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been seen almost a million times in just two wow. days. So uh, uh, that uh, it's it's really fun to do that. But in that video. I kind of took some of your 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 advice to heart because I knew people would say, oh, I'm not even going to watch this video. They don't even believe in global warming. So, like, one of the three pieces of evidence that I talk about in addition to, like, you know, I believe in gravity, the Big Bang, and one of them is human-induced, not just global warming, but human-induced global warming. And it's just funny to read the comments. are like, I'm not even going to watch this because they don't even believe in it. And it's like somebody cuts and pastes, like, actually, it's the, you know, third paragraph he talks about how they do believe in global warming. But anyway... The, the point that science knows everything and that scientists have some special claim on wisdom is something that I wanna challenge because you know as I say in the video, science means knowledge, it doesn't mean wisdom. And I did another video on my channel on briankeating.com or on YouTube. Uh, and the, the video is actually called uh, Knowledge Not Equal Sign Wisdom, meaning that there are all these people throughout scientific history who thought they had the right answer, the truth, the knowledge. And it's just amazing to think about how little they knew in retrospect. And yet we know that, and we still have so much confidence in scientists and in the ineffability of science and obey scientists and listen to scientists. It's, what do you make of that? Like, why, well, why do people know that, like Aristotle thought there were four elements and uh, there's 114 of them. And, why, and, and yet back in his day, he was unchallenged for 2000 years. Why do we think today is any different?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of it's become political you know, when, when politicians say, well, I'm pro science it implies the other side and because we live live in a binary, um, society, the, the, at least the United States, you either, you either vote Democrat or Republican. If you vote, very few people vote for other parties that it becomes very, you're either this or you're this, which is the opposite. But, but let's just take a look at the knowledge does not equal wisdom thing, which, which I believe in. There are many people far wiser than me throughout history when there was basically no science and <laughs> yeah you know maybe even forty thousand years ago before documented history there were people wiser than me like someone who said mm, let's go towards this area because it's probably less tribes that we're going to have to deal with which means we're going to live longer because there's going to be less violence that's a wise decision mm-hmm. whereas other people who are scientists might say no let's meet the other tribes people the other tribes because we'll learn together and, and we'll learn about them and it might be wiser to like not learn as much a great example of of wisdom without religion is buddha so buddha lived in this grove where his 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 monks and him lived and he lived right in the middle of three warring kingdoms one of those kingdoms was his was related to him he was he was a a child of that kingdom and he was you know supposedly going to be the prince or the king or whatever and he and what kind of wisdom did it take to make sure none of these three kingdoms who were all warring with each other, none of them killed him, mm. even though he was even affiliated with one of the kingdoms. There had to be a lot of wisdom and other than religious wisdom, you know, just had just common sense, like, how do I navigate these these warring kingdoms? That was probably pretty difficult. Absolutely. And like let's take Jesus, you know Jesus is, you know, when he enlists Peter, as his disciple, you know, Simon the fisherman became Peter. Um Simon says, "Listen, I have uh, I didn't mean the pun." But Simon says, uh, Simon said, "Listen, I'll, I'll go with you, but first I got to bury my father." And this is a very wise thing. Jesus said, "Let the dead bury the dead." And you know, that's an analogy towards you can't live your life filled with the regrets of the past, filled mm-hmm. with obligations towards towards history as opposed to, to, towards your future. And, you know, that's a very wise thing, regardless of whether or not there is a, an intelligent designer.
2: I agree. When you think about how, you know, the tradition has endured, the wisdom has endured. That's why, you know, I'm just, I guess with you, I'm always curious, uh, and you have these conversations about burnout and so forth. I'm just curious, you know, let's say you've, you've already kind of ascribed, you know, tremendous amount of wisdom, to Buddhism, to Christianity, to Judaism. And I never hear you saying like, oh, like atheists, you know, like some atheist idea is like incredibly wise. And all these religions from meditation, which you do engage in or have engaged in, uh, to Jewish rituals. Like we talked about Shiva, the mourning process. Uh, we talked about these parables and the stoic wisdom of Jesus that you have kind of, um, really highlighted in past conversations. Uh, and, uh, and so, like, why not be religious, <laughs> you know? I guess from a practical standpoint, like if, if it's increased your happiness, James, and, and it decreased your burnout and gives you fulfillment, why not like turn up the notch a little bit, go a little bit deeper?
0: But I am, I, I do consider myself very religious. Like I yeah. learn from all of these great examples and every, really everything in life is an example of some divinity that I am unaware of. And I'm unaware of any aspect of it. I I know nothing about it. But everything we see is a clue. And mm. I think living life that way mm. is the most religious life you can live, as opposed to fighting for a belief. I'm, I'm not saying you're doing that, but I'm but I'm actually thinking of atheists in this case. Fighting for a belief kind of caps your curiosity. It's like what you say about science. It's like the whole point of science is to que- question given science, come up with theories, experiment, learn more and and move the frontier of knowledge. And I would say religion is a, is a science. It's all um, kind of theories that we try to prove about what divi- divinity might be out there. And I'm always saying, and I'm saying, the most religious you could be is to doubt all religion to keep moving into mystery and, mm-hmm. and curiosity. <laughs> yeah, the quote that I have in my PragerU video
2: or in my um, BrianKeating.com video, is by Richard Feynman, Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, who said, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts, not the wisdom of experts, yeah. not the knowledge of experts. Because if you had just accepted what Aristotle said or Isaac Newton said, you never have Einstein. You'd never have Weinstein. You'd never have uh, Keating, right? So, so, and and that would. And you such... would never be eating. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Einstein uh, plus a W is Weinstein, and eating <laughs> plus a K is K. I want to just finish up this conversation on the end. No, this is not the end of the impossible part. But I can never resist because there's so much I want to tell you about everything from BitClout, which I am the biggest holder of altcoins called Alticher coins on BitClout. Let's talk about that some other time. Oh
0: yeah, no, I, let's talk about that next time because. Um, People keep telling me I should go on BitCloud. I've never been there. Is it you worth should. going you've on? Got, you've got $50,000
2: plus in stored notional value. Yeah, what people do is you basically buy, uh, you take, convert a tiny Bitcoin into a Bitcloud. then you take the Bitcloud and you buy a creator coin. So you can buy a creator coin. So I bought you And i bought eric weinstein and kamal ravikant uh who is a good uh good friend of both of ours and just a wonderful individual he was on my show is coming out that and so he's uh but it gives you that that wonderful vice of envy like why is why is the ravikant you know coin worth more and it's funny because his brother's coin naval is like one of the founders of you know of, of popular attention to uh blockchain and his coin's like fifty thousand. dollars Musk is the highest, I think. Musk has a coin that's worth ninety one thousand dollars. I don't know anyone who would be full fool- because you can't sell it, you can't in- you can't convert it back to Bitcoin yet. Supposedly you will be able to take it off the blockchain, but anyway, I don't talk about that yet. But but I do want to talk about because there is a lot of like weird things that could happen. Imagine part of your, your value of the Altucher coin is um, is like how much social notoriety you are creating on Twitter, followers, Instagram. So like one way to do it, what if James becomes president? So, like, if you became president, Donald Trump's coin is worth, like, $80,000. You know, it's much more than the, uh, than Altucher coin is worth um, or a Keating coin. So, anyway, I want to talk about because then there's, like, what if somebody, like, takes out a hit on, you know, on Elon Musk's to make his coin? You know, God forbid. Or <laughs> anyway, there's all sorts of weird scenarios I want to get into on that. Um, the other thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, think, like a Nobel Prize winner, which is coming along. I want to talk about PodPub. Uh, But the last thing I want to talk about is actually very pertinent to my interview with Michio Kaku and and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And even my friends, when I talk to, like, uh, Eric Weinstein, um, here's a problem I'm having, and this is a generic question, not just for physicists. But when you're talking with a guest, and and they're obviously genius, they're brilliant, um, but you know they're talking in their own book. They're talking about what they want to talk about, what they're comfortable with, what their book literally is about in the case of Kaku and Tyson. Or Eric and his theory of geometric unity, which he came he came on my show and revealed it, and uh, not on Joe Rogan's show. On my show, uh, was the first and best. Very important. Yeah, it was. Uh, (laughs) uh, But but the question I have for you is, you know, I'm dealing with people, and and you know, I know what my audience wants to hear, and I feel like you're the best person in podcasting. You and Jordan Harbinger are extremely good at asking no, I, the questions the audience wants to hear but do you ever worry that you might be like kind of falling victim and like not pandering but you're just like you're talking the book of your guests, which is not really what I don't think we have a job I mean it's not my job it's your job but but you know
0: I'm I'm supposed to be a professor right uh but but how do you fa- avoid that trap no but this is a this is a great question so there's 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 two answers and one's one's very specific which is you know if they come on you know let's say let's say uh, uh Kim Kardashian's publicist reaches out to you and says Kim Kardashian really wants to go on the into the po- impossible podcast for the second time <laughs> for the second time because that in itself was considered impossible the first time around so <laughs> it's a natural podcast for her to go on and she wants to specifically talk about her book about parenting and marriage mm-hmm. and uh, and you say okay well now you're going to Because this is the, there's like a social contract. They're like, this is the reason why she's coming on the podcast. So you're, there's an obligation to talk about her book. But the, the, what I always do is listen, you, um, if people want to hear the basic summary of your book, I'll do it in 30 seconds. But the real great summary is on Tim Ferriss's or when you went on Joan Rogan's podcast, people should definitely listen to that. But I want to talk about there's There's one thing that I started thinking about when I was reading your book that, really made me curious and then you go into that and that could Mm -hmm. bring you down it's still off the concepts in the book but you want to kind of establish a narrative that has that's just not her on repeat and Ah. some guests are harder than others to do that with but i think that's incredibly important and your responsibility as a podcaster Mm. but there's a bigger question too which is do you also pander to what your audience wants so for instance when i started writing my stories my personal stories my mm-hmm. audience wanted to re- start a story with man i had a gun to my head and i was about to kill myself because i went broke and then i took all these did this 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 mm-hmm. and then i finally bounced back but it was pretty miserable and then i went broke again stay right. tuned right. for a the next part porn you've talked yeah. About. Right. yeah yeah and 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 there's a danger And you see this happen in TV shows all the time where the TV show almost becomes a caricature of itself. But uh, Jerry Seinfeld had a really great point in an interview with Howard Stern where Howard Stern says, Jerry, the entire country wanted you to do a 10th season of Seinfeld. Why didn't you do it? And Jerry Seinfeld said, well, Howard, they they are not in show business. And I am. I made the best TV show ever. And so by definition, I should not do... What they all want me to do, and that's why I didn't do a 10th season. And so, you kind of always want to, you know, and but there's a great example with Bob Dylan like, he was a folk guitar player and singer, and then he goes to the biggest folk, you know, festival and he breaks out an electric guitar and plays a song, and they're all booing him the entire time. But that's he was true to himself, and then but take note the author of losing the Nobel prize, he then won the Nobel prize for it. <laughs> that's
2: right, exactly.
0: So so it's sort of like, if, if there's anything that divine creators, aliens want us to do is to pave our own path and not just go in the footsteps of paths before us, awesome. I think. Oh, that's wonderful, James. The, I, there, I, there's I, there's I, risk in that though. Yeah. And so and so then it's okay to think like an investor, which is, okay, I wanna mitigate the risk. I, I uh, you know, something I've never done is like, you know, to destroy the planet. So I probably shouldn't do that just because I have, I shouldn't do it because just because I haven't done it. So you want to mitigate the risks. There's rewards to being a human. And, and the best way to win those rewards is to, is to stay in the game. And so you have to mitigate risk also at the same time. It's a balance.
2: As uh, Woody Allen said, most of life is just showing up, but I got to show up to go on another radio show. James, I had such a blast. Let's do another one in in a couple of days for now.
0: Yeah, let's do it. And we still have to finally finish how the universe began. That's right. If it's even possible. Yes. (laughs) All right, James. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks a lot, Jay. I will talk to you soon. Bye.
1: Sometimes it takes a different approach